This is Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us on the podcast series for Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. This season, you'll hear from 11 women across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. This week, we talk with Joanne Turnquist, President and CEO of Central Carolina Community Foundation, based in Columbia. Welcome, Joanne Turnquist. How would you define your overriding life vision and how that has affected your career? I would define my overriding vision as lifting as I climb. I think there are two aspects to that statement. The first is climb, to aspire to be the best that I can be, to achieve as much as I can, but while doing so, to ensure that I'm helping other people overcome barriers, overcome obstacles, really be the best that they can be because it's important to have a legacy of wonderful success behind me. And how has that helped you in your career? It's helped me in my career because I've truly been able to focus on the whole, not the me. And when I focus on the whole, when I focus on the vision, the mission of the organization that I'm working for, and the capacity building within that organization, it allows me and the company to succeed. Was there a turning point in your life that made a difference in terms of your career? The turning point in my life was when I went to work for the Clorox company. And I was entrusted with running a brand new product rollout with very little direction. And what that did for me was to build confidence that I could do things that I had never done before, that I could make a difference in the future of my company, and that anything was possible. And how did that experience then translate into your later work in the nonprofit area? When I was selected to run Central Carolina Community Foundation, I had no experience running a nonprofit. But again, pulling back on the strength of knowing that if you apply yourself, if you learn, if you listen to experts, if you have faith in the team that you're working with, you can achieve anything, I jumped right in. But there's a learning curve. There is a learning curve. No one goes into anything new without having a learning curve. The speed with which you get to the top of that learning curve is dependent upon your humility and your ability to ask questions. Was there anyone growing up who really made a difference for your life? A teacher, for example. Yes. A teacher and my mom and dad. Mrs. Oschlager was an incredible second grade teacher. She inspired not only my love of reading, but my love of reading as a portal to the entire world. My mom and dad divorced. My mom then became a single mom, and she had a terrific career and balanced it as well as any working mom could, telling us that we could be anything we wanted to do. And my dad always was supportive always said, reach for your dreams, go for your goals, don't let anyone stop you. What is your biggest workplace challenge today? My biggest workplace challenge today is to say no. We are given opportunities every day to participate, to support, to be engaged with, and it's critical to stay focused on the mission even though there are shiny objects out there, exciting proposals that I would love to participate in, I need to be conscious of my team's capacity and my capacity in order to stay focused, in order to achieve our goal. And, and why is that important for the mission of the organization? 
It's very easy to derail your work towards your mission. If you have clear objectives with clear measures and you stick to your knitting, you can achieve far more than if you wander back and forth on a path. What would your advice be for young women today? Trust yourself, trust your instincts. Be as courageous as possible in tuning out both your own inner voice that says, I can't do it, and others' voices that ask you, why are you trying this? So it's that building of confidence. Building of confidence, absolutely. Building of confidence. And the second point I would make is to learn every day. Don't stop learning when you achieve a certain goal. Continue to aspire to learn more, learn from others, share your learnings with others. What is your hope for South Carolina? My hope for South Carolina is that we will take our place at the top of the heap for education, that we will take our place at the top of the heap for taking care of those who are unable to take care of themselves, that we will continue to protect our environment, and we will continue to protect this wonderful jewel that we call home. Where do you think women are today, and you have been through uh, many years of seeing women at different stages. Where are we today? I think women today are at a crossroads. There is tremendous pressure pushing us back in many ways, be it access to health care or access to education. But I also think we're at a turning point where our voices are being heard and we are much better at collective voice, that we are much better at supporting one another that we have found courage in stating what is true and what is right and what needs to happen in order for our state to progress. How has the Me Too movement affected gender issues in general? In some regards, it's been beneficial. I think there is more respect and I think people are more conscious of what they say. On the other hand, I think it's also built some uncertainty about how people can work together and interact together because the rules are being formed again. So starting over in a starting way. Starting over in a way. Starting over in a way, yes. And out of all of this, what do you think will happen as far as women in the workplace? I'm hopeful that the Me Too movement will help us set another course. And I believe that the young women that are advancing in their careers and in their life may have a better path forward because of the courage of a number of women who are speaking out. One of the issues that women face today uh, continues to be work-life balance. How did you overcome those issues and what do you recommend for women? Work-life balance is a challenge and it was a challenge. I was in an industry that was predominantly male and I was always the only woman executive on the team. So the expectation was that I could be there as long or longer than the men, that I should be there as long or longer than the men, work days, and that I should pull more than my weight, which made it tough having a life and having a relationship and wanting to be involved in other things. I think the secret to having work-life balance, especially today, is to say when you're hired, to say to your managers, to say as you go up the ranks, that these are my boundaries. 
this is what I will do for the company. I will excel. I will help us succeed. But I will also excel and succeed at being a mom, at being a wife, at being a volunteer. But is it the case today that women still have to work harder in order to be successful? Because women are still not making as much money as men, for example. I believe that women believe we have to work harder to prove ourselves. I have seen it over and over again that unless a woman is 95% certain that she can do something, she won't raise her hand and say, I can take that promotion. Whereas oftentimes a man at 55% of certainty will say, absolutely, I can do that. So I think part of that is internal. I also think part of that is cultural that oftentimes we aren't given the credit to take the risk. And do you think that's gonna change a lot in the next, say, 10 or 15 years? I believe it will change if women exert confidence, if women help one another, if networks are built, because those key networks help overcome a lot of those obstacles. And we're getting better at building that new girls network to compete with the old boys network. <laughs> You've held leadership roles, as you mentioned, uh, with the Clorox company, with Procter & Gamble, Johnson Diversity. Why did you decide to move from the corporate world to the nonprofit world? It's a big change. My husband Ernie and I don't have children. And as you move into your 50s, at least for me, thinking about legacy became more critical. And while it's fabulous to have a great career and watch people around you succeed, the opportunity to give back to a community, to make a difference in a different way, to see the impact of your work on communities was the driving reason for me to make the change. And tell us about Central Carolina Community Foundation, what the mission is, mm -hmm. how you are going about to achieve that mission. Central Carolina Community Foundation is 34 years old. We're one of, gosh, close to 700 community foundations across the country. And our mission is to increase, facilitate, and promote philanthropy. We are very focused on three key things. First, working with charitable individuals who want to make a difference. We invest their funds and we help them find organizations that are making a difference. The second is we invest in our community, primarily in connecting community. And lastly, we are a convener. We help people collaborate around key issues because we don't have a dog in the hunt but we do have funds to invest, so people usually answer our call to come join us. And tell us about those funds, because uh, it has consistently been growing. It has. We currently have assets of slightly north of $140 million. We invest with our donors approximately $13 to $15 million annually in nonprofits. We have the opportunity to take a look at what the issues are, what the opportunities are, and we can direct our unrestricted funds to those opportunities. And one of the projects over the years that has also grown under your leadership has been Midlands Gives. Uh, Midlands Gives has been so much fun. We are in our sixth year with a 24-hour online day of giving. We invite nonprofits from our 11 counties to participate. Last year, we broke all records. We had 372 nonprofits 
who were able to raise uh, almost $1.8 million. And the best news, we had f over 14,000 donations. We ranked in the top five in the country for numbers of gifts. And we're not as big as Dallas or Tampa or Austin. What does that say about the Midlands and South Carolina? It says that people care. It says that people are learning that you don't have to be Bill Gates or Oprah Winfrey to be a philanthropist, that when a community comes together to support the nonprofits that are making a tremendous difference, we can do incredible things. $1.8 million in 24 hours? Holy moly. <laughs> what has been the biggest challenge you faced personally with your career? The biggest challenge I faced personally with my career was working for a company who did not have a culture of supporting their employees, but rather belittling them, invoking fear in order to produce results. I was able to perform. I was able to insulate my team from a great deal of that. But that type of culture taught me that the environment that I want to stage with the companies I work in or the company I'm leading is critical to the long-term success. Short-term, fear can do wonders, but long-term, it will always backfire. So in a sense, a negative became a positive because it helped you learn what you didn't want to do in business. Absolutely. I think oftentimes things that you don't like or things that are struggles provide a greater lesson than, than things that you slide into home base with. Another challenging time in your history here was the floods of 2015 when the community was facing major problems and especially those in low-income areas. You stepped up, you worked with the governor. Tell us about that time and how that all came about to create a fund that would be statewide. It actually mm -hmm. went beyond your mission. It did. it did. We established a fund the day after the floods hit the Midlands of South Carolina. And the initial mission was to support nonprofits who were helping with recovery and relief in our 11 county area. Two weeks later, Governor Haley reached out and asked if we would take on supporting the entire state. And we said, absolutely yes. So the 1SC fund was born. We work closely, both with the governor's office and the South Carolina Disaster Recovery Group, which helped us identify the hardest hit and most vulnerable communities. We put together a grants committee made up of folks from across our state so that it would not be focused just on the Midlands, and we went to work. The governor was very instrumental in helping us raise money, and since that time, we have invested over $3.6 million into relief and recovery. We have helped close to 19,000 families return home. And with this most recent disaster, Hurricane Florence, we have raised close to $1.8 million and have already started deploying grants to those communities that were really, really hard hit. What would you say to the notion that some people would say this is a government function? Why is it so important to have people stepping forward in a community? In disaster, you need both public and private support. We were very, very fortunate and continue to be fortunate with FEMA money and other disaster monies that come from governments. However, those monies take anywhere from 18 to 24 months to get into our state and be deployed, be distributed to those in need. So during the time prior to the disbursement of those funds, private funds are critical. 
Without those monies, a lot of the work wouldn't be done, and most importantly, a lot of the volunteers wouldn't have the funds to come in to help our state. Well, and as we've seen, that FEMA doesn't even begin to cover someone's who might have lost a home, for example. No, they, help, they don't. But there are so many needs. There's so many needs. There are so many needs. And FEMA doesn't cover a lot of things like food and water and mucking and gutting and all of the types of things that are necessary before the rebuilding can even begin. So given all of this, your work on a statewide level, your work with Midlands Gives, where do you see your organization going in the next five years? I believe our organization is going to continue with its role as collaborator. And I believe that we will not only be collaborating on issues and opportunities within our 11 counties, but with organizations throughout the state on key issues and key opportunities. We are too small of a state to work in isolation. So my hope is that funders across our state will join forces to address some of these issues that are standing in the way of our state being the best it can be. I have often heard you speak about women in the Midlands. Tell us what you think about women in this area, because you've lived around the country. I have. I believe that we have an incredible cohort of women in this community, in the Midlands of South Carolina. We have industry leaders, we have organizational leaders, we have faith leaders, we have some government leaders. And the Midlands is unique in the fact that you can come to the Midlands without a pedigree, without a big old bag of money that you can toss around. And if you truly want to make a difference, you can. And this network of women are there to help you do it. Tell me again about your favorite teacher growing up. And why? My favorite teacher growing up was Mrs. Oschlager. I grew up in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and she was at Burwell Elementary. She was fabulous. She was stern, but she loved her kids. And she allowed us to read during class. She allowed us to take time in the library. She told stories. We got to look at maps and envision what, where we might be, even though we were still in that little classroom in Burwell Elementary School in Minnetonka, Minnesota. She opened my eyes to what reading could do and the adventures that reading could take me on. And that has helped you throughout your career, oh, that it's, thought? Oh, it certainly has, because reading just opens up so many opportunities, and learning opens up so many opportunities. And that bug of travel gives you perspective. And when you go to places away from the United States and you realize how fortunate we are, it's a tremendous wake-up call. What advice do you have for someone who's interested in doing what you do? My advice for someone who wants to move into nonprofit leadership, and particularly foundation leadership, is to first volunteer with organizations in the nonprofit sphere to make sure that that is the environment that you want to live your life in. The second is to find other people who are doing that job and spend time with them. And the third is to find a job, regardless of what it is, within a foundation so that you can learn the ropes. And then seek help in building a development plan so that you can learn the skills necessary to lead the organization. How did you get the job that you have right now? Dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was working at the University of South Carolina after leaving industry. I had been there just a short time, and I had decided it was time to go back to industry when I was approached 
with this job opportunity. And I threw my hat in the ring, and I was selected for this job almost 10 years ago. And the rest is history. Thank you very much, Joanne Turnquist. Thank you, Linda O'Brien. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. Subscribe to this podcast on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, or wherever you find podcasts to hear the rest of stories from this season. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer. Tyora Moody is web manager. Special thanks to Bobby Kennedy, director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>